you be opening your Bibles, please, to Genesis 46. Genesis 46 is where we're going to be looking at today, 46 and uh, 47. Now, the final piece of the family reunion is just about to be put in play when the brothers return home and tell their father that Joseph is alive. Joseph is alive, and not only that, he is the ruler over all the land of Egypt. This is a scene right out of a Hallmark movie, except it's true, and oh, it is glorious. Can you even imagine what was going on in the heart and mind of Jacob as he hears this glorious reality that his son, who he has believed for 22 years, has been killed, and now he finds out he is alive. Our transformational truth of this week is every family has dysfunction, and all God's people said, amen and amen. But every family can experience God's redemption. That's the message of what we're looking at today. Before I go any farther and jump into our message, I just want to quickly give you an update on my sweet husband. Mr. Stockdale has an appointment tomorrow with a spinal specialist. He has been in pain, a lot of pain, for the last three weeks. He is able to stand up and he's able to walk around short distances, but it's almost impossible for him to get com comfortable. But I will tell you, he has met this uh, difficult situation with his usual optimism. Every day he's believing it's going to be so much better than the day before, and um, he is uh, trusting in the Lord to do what he will. So I thank you so much for praying for him. I thank you for the text and calls and so forth concerning him, and I will keep you updated as we move along in this. Well, the first thing I want to talk to you today about is the sacrifice of Israel. Before uh, if you'll be looking in, uh, first of all, in Genesis 46, I'm sorry, 45, we're just going to pick up a couple of verses, 45, verse 25. And then they went out from Egypt and came to the lane of, Can of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they said to him, Joseph is alive, and indeed he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. But he was stunned, I should say so. And he did not believe them. I mean, it was just too good to be true. Verse 27, when they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of his father Jacob revived. That is, he believed indeed what they were saying was the truth. Verse 28, then Israel said, it's enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So the first thing we're going to talk about is the sacrifice of Israel. We'll just move right into chapter 46. So Israel set out with all that he had. I don't think it took him very long to get packed up and ready to go. And he came to Beersheba and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. 
And God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. And I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. That is, God was telling him, I will be with you as you go as a sojourner into Egypt, but there will be a time, there will be a time I will bring my people up again out of Egypt. And he goes on to say, and Joseph will close your eyes. Verse 5, then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagon, which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They took their livestock and their property, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and they came to Egypt. Jacob and all of his descendants with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters and all his descendants, he brought them down to Egypt. Can you even imagine what this scene was like. It is hard for us to imagine what was going on in Jacob's heart and mind as he is trying to absorb what he has heard. Now he goes with all of the family and pauses there at Beersheba. This is the southernmost part of Canaan and he pauses before he goes on into Egypt and we believe that is because his grandfather Abraham had gone to Egypt when there was a famine in the land and it was not God. God's will. He did not consult the Lord and things were disastrous. His own father Isaac had been forbidden by God to go into Egypt when there was a famine during his lifetime. So now we see that uh, Jacob is a bit afraid to leave the promised land that is by covenant been given to God's people and to go into Egypt. He's very anxious and he's evidently very fearful. And God assures him that he does not need to be afraid. Isn't that like the Lord? He knows where we are. He sees us and he understands what we are feeling. And not only that, in verse 4 he says, I'm going to go with you to Egypt. I mean, Jacob is basically saying, God, if you don't go, I'm not going. Now, can you imagine the restraint it took? He was so anxious to see his son Joseph, and yet he is willing to pause to get the mind and the heart of the Lord. It took such restraint, and he's bowing at the altar, I believe, with his hands raised to heaven. Praise and worship is freely flowing from his lips. He's so grateful that his son Joseph is alive, and he is seeking direction from the Lord And uh, so before he makes a move, he wants to know, is this God's will? Oh, beloved, what a truth we see here. What an incredible spiritual principle. Jacob seeks the Lord's presence and direction, and he puts himself in a place where he can hear from the Lord. John Phillips said this, just because something looks like the right thing to do, Just because all of the circumstances point that way, just because one's own desires affirm the move, and just because everyone else urges it as the sensible thing to do, it does not necessarily follow that it is the will of God. The important thing to ask is, what does God have to say? We had best inquire of him. Mere natural affection 
must not be allowed to sway decisions. Donna has told us on several occasions that feelings are fickle and they are fleeting. Uh, emotions are a good thing, beloved. They enrich our lives, but we dare not make decisions based entirely upon our emotions. Not every reasonable opportunity that is presented to us is indeed God's will. Satan, the liar, the one who despises us, the one who constantly is trying to trip us up, he is quite capable and even willing to tempt us to move forward without praying about the decision. So when faced with a decision, beloved, we must seek the face of the Lord and get his wisdom lest we move into a direction that is not his will. So God spoke to Israel in this place. He told him not to be afraid that he was going to be going with him. And he reassured Jacob that he would not forfeit the covenant by leaving the promised land. So having heard from God, Jacob and his family migrate to Egypt where their descendants will ultimately remain for four centuries until grown into a mighty people, and ultimately God will bring them out of Egypt and return them to the promised land. So that's the sacrifice of Israel. I want to talk to you for a moment about the sons of Israel. And uh, chapter 46, beginning in verse 8 all the way to 27, is a genealogy of Jacob. These are all his uh, um, descendants. Uh, they're mentioned. And beloved, I'm going to save you the, uh, having to listen to me stumble over those names, and I'm going to save my uh, poor little brain from having to try to speak those names, but there they are, genealogy. Now, <laughs> Dr. Rogers used to say all scripture is inspired, but it's not all inspiring. Amen? You get that? But what I love about genealogies is that God shows us through these records that he knows the name of everyone who belongs to him. And beloved, our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so these genealogies remind us that every person is so important to the Lord and that he knows each and every one of us. So there you have a genealogy. So let's pick up down in verse 28. And now he sent Judah before him. That is, all of the uh, uh, family of Jacob are moving together, headed towards Egypt. And they send Judah ahead to Joseph, verse 28, to point out the way before him to, Gosh, to Goshen. And then they came to the land of Goshen. But Joseph was so excited he couldn't wait for them. So verse 29 says he prepared his chariot and he went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. Oh my goodness. And as soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and he wept on his neck a long time. What a scene. What a scene. Verse 30, and then Israel said to Joseph, well, now let me die. I dare say, 
Israel is a bit of a melancholy soul. And he says, now I have seen your face that you are still alive. And he's saying, now it's enough. I can just die. I can just die. I can remember uh, as Craig and I were raising up our two boys, after both of them had made professions of faith, I had that sense. Lord, my work is done. I've gotten to see those boys step into the kingdom so you can just take me home. Because this is what I have been parenting for. This is what I've been living for. And now that this has been done in your perfect will and timing, it's enough. So I do understand it, but I still think, well, I still think he's very melancholy temperament that we have there. Uh, but Joseph said to his brothers in his father's household in verse 31, I'll go up and tell Pharaoh and he will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. These men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock. They brought their flocks and their herds with all they had. And when uh, Pharaoh calls you and says, well, what is your occupation? You shall say your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now both we and our fathers that we may live in the land of Goshen for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians so Judah has gone ahead and he is going to meet Joseph, and Joseph is going to lead him to the land that they'll occupy. But Joseph rushes out there, falls on his father's neck, and what a scene this is. What a scene this is. And then he tells his family, now I'm going to take you into Pharaoh to meet him, and we are going to settle you in the land of Goshen. Joseph had already been scoping out the land, and he knew this was the best place to settle his family. He also wanted to make sure that his family was a bit separated from the Egyptians. You remember the Egyptians had many, many gods, and they were a very uh, wicked people, and so he wanted some separation from them, and putting them in Goshen would be the very best way to do that. Not only that, Goshen was a perfect place for the livestock because it was a very rich part of Egypt, and so so they ended up in a very, very wonderful place uh, for them to raise their livestock. Well, this dysfunctional family continues to operate in God's grace of redemption as Joseph champions the love gift of forgiveness. What an example he is for us. Now, we're going to pause for just a moment from our story, and I, I want to remind you that every family has dysfunction to some degree, and it is because we are broken people living in a broken world, and the best we can do, our very best, beloved, is to operate out of that brokenness to some degree. So dealing with difficult family is challenging at best. And perhaps no one had as much of this as our brother Joseph. Uh, has dealt with difficult situations, but it is challenging at best, and it is impossible, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, to accurately deal with difficult people. Now, I call these difficult people irregular people. Now, the reason I do is because when I go to the store and I go to a rack that is marked irregulars, I know that what I'm about to purchase is flawed. And frankly, it tends to fit better than the regular stuff. I remember one time buying a pair of a regular pantyhose. And when I put them on, the waistband came up to my chin. 
someone was telling me about a pair she had bought that had three legs. <laughs> so we know the term irregular means flawed, not perfect. And so every family has those people in their life that are difficult to get along with. Now, I'm not going to ask you to agree with me, but I think you know what I'm talking about. And what can we do to work through the situations to build the relationship and to honor the Lord? Well, relationships, especially within the family, can be very hard for a variety of reasons. Difficulties can arise if your difficult person, your regular person, is an unbeliever. Or varying levels of spiritual maturity within believers may be a problem. And don't even get me started on differing denominations and political parties. Personality plays a great deal in it. Temperament, those differences can be at the root cause of the issues. Generational differences. Yes, the older I get, the more I look around and think, this doesn't make sense. This does not make sense. Generational differences, varying backgrounds, how we were raised. How we think is the right way to do things, that can be a problem. Health issues can certainly be a problem with irregular people. Generational differences, varying backgrounds, excuse me, generational differences, blended families can cause difficulties. Holiday gatherings can be ruthless. And we're on the verge of a whole bunch of them. And in-laws can turn into outlaws in some cases. And beloved, if you have been able to avoid your irregular person for any length of time, somebody's going to get married and you're going to be thrown right back into that situation. So whatever the cause, every family is dysfunctional on some level. But every family can experience redemption. Now, I don't want to be overly simplistic or dismissive. I've been in ministry long enough teaching women to know that many women are dealing with very difficult relationships from their irregular people, and they're struggling to find the balance of how they maintain their own well-being and still honor the Lord in those relationships. And let's face it, all relationships are hard. Again, this goes back to the fact that we're broken people dealing with broken people. And I do want to make this disclaimer that when I'm talking about irregular people, I'm not talking about a relationship where there has been any type of abuse. In those situations, I would encourage you to work with a, uh, a Christian counselor or a, a um, spiritual counselor that might help you uh, navigate the fallout of these relationships. I'm talking about sort of the mundane, run-of-the-mill, difficult relationships. Relationships. And I want to share with you just some insight that Craig and I discovered as we tried to navigate some relationships in our life that were very challenging. The first is you must mentally accept that person. You have to mentally accept that they are already set in their ways and they are probably not going to change. 
One of the worst things you can do is pin your hopes on the fact that they will change because, frankly, they're probably not going to. If they wanted to change, they probably already would. You cannot change them. Accept them as they are and keep trusting the Lord. He does not hold you accountable for their actions or reactions to you. He only holds you responsible for your response. So release your expectations and rest in the Lord. Not only mentally accept the fact that they are who they are, The second thing is to emotionally detach yourself. For the sake of your own emotional well-being, it may be necessary to emotionally detach yourself from them so they cannot continue to wound your spirit. Now listen to me. This does not give you permission to be unkind or to cancel them as we're seeing done in our culture or to cut them out of your life. Or use the silent treatment. I'll have to say sometimes in my household, my family was thrilled when I used the silent treatment. (laughs) Whole nother story. But anyways, you must begin to emotionally distance yourself from their harmful words or cruelties. So you can protect yourself as you attempt to lower your expectation. You may never know the root cause of their behavior. Perhaps they were emotionally crippled in their past. Whatever the cause, you cannot afford to make yourself sick in order to make them well. So you may have to emotionally detach Mentally accept they are who they are and probably not going to change. Emotionally detach so they're not allowed to just continue to wound you. God does not expect you to uh, be walked all over by them. And so often as women, it, it is not hard to hurt our feelings. Some of you are extremely sensitive. I'm in that camp and it does not take just a whole lot for my feelings to get hurt. I'm not saying that being this sensitive is a good thing. I'm just saying it is the the way that I'm wired. So sometimes we have to emotionally detach. And then the third thing is physically separate. It may be helpful and even necessary for you to minimize the time you spend with your irregular person if possible. This may help you stop being drawn into their drama and dissatisfaction with you. It's incredible to me that my irregular people were loved by other people. But everything they did and everything they said didn't work for me. And a lot of it was hurtful stuff. It is a truism that hurt people hurt people. But you can lessen the impact of their behavior if you will limit your exposure to them. And number four, and this is the big one, ministry-oriented. While we must accept them for who they are and come to grips with the fact that they may never change, we must first and foremost look on them as an opportunity to minister for the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot afford to be dissuaded by their lack of love and acceptance of us. We simply need to do the right thing 
in the sight of the Lord and leave the results with him. Paul wrote, as far as it depends on you, if possible, be at peace with all men. Additionally, I would encourage you to get a strong group of like-minded friends in the faith who can help you maintain your spiritual equilibrium and keep a biblical perspective even as you deal with these difficult people. Because we love Jesus and we want to do what he asks us to do. We want to be kind and loving. But again, we need to recognize these people are flawed and perhaps they have been emotionally crippled in some way. I just want to tell you this, that as you deal with your regular person, that ultimately what you're trying to do is deal with them in a way that will honor the Lord. But even if you do, while reconciliation is possible, your person may not want to be reconciled. It is a gift from the Lord and they may reject it. So you do what Jesus requires of you regardless of how they respond. 1 John 3, 21 said, Beloved, if your heart does not condemn us, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. That is, even if they are unkind, even if they're difficult, even if you cannot seem to make any inroads into the relationship for reconciliation's sake, do what God requires of you so that your confidence before the Lord is not shaken, so that your conscience is clean before the Lord. Micah 6.8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? That is the most concise a verse that tells us what is required of us as believers. Joseph is the champion when it comes to dealing with the regular people, and he had a lot of them. What about his brothers? Miss Potiphar, Mrs. Potiphar, the chief baker. And yet, and yet, Joseph, our champion, our picture of Christ, refuses to seek revenge and actually finds ways to bless them. He is the premier example of doing the hard thing, that is forgiving those who deserve it the least and leaving the result with the Lord. Beloved, this is not a, a particularly uh, inclusive list of things to do. And again, I don't want to be simplistic. I just want to tell you, here's a few ideas that possibly will help you as you deal with the regular people in your life. All right, the last point is the sojourn of Israel. And this is in chapter 47. During his years in Egypt, Joseph has observed and studied Pharaoh and his people, and he knows for a fact that the Egyptians despise the shepherds. This is another reason why he moves his family out to Goshen. John Phillips said, unlike the Egyptians who were a settled agricultural people, shepherds were a nomadic migratory people, ever on the move, never sending their roots down deeply into one spot. That was of vital importance. Unless the brethren held on to their shepherd character, 
pilgrim characters all would be lost. The Lord would also have us to be pilgrims and strangers on this earth. Beloved, we, we are pilgrims and strangers. This is not home to us. This is not where we belong. We will ultimately be caught up into the presence of the Lord and we will spend eternity with him and all of God's people. That's where we belong. And we pray even so, come Lord Jesus. And so Joseph knows that the shepherds are loathsome to the Egyptians. So look in verse 1 of chapter 47. Joseph went in and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers... Their flocks and herds and all that they have have come to the land of Canaan. And behold, they are in the land of Goshen. So Joseph gets five of his brothers and he takes them to Pharaoh to be introduced and to speak for the family. He also takes his father. And uh, look down now in verse 7. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many years have you lived? So Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life. What? Nor have they attained the years that my father lived during the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and he went out from his presence so Joseph settled his father and brothers and gave them possession of the land in Egypt in the best of the land in the land of Ramses as Pharaoh had ordered and he provided for his family and his brothers and his father's household with food according to their little one did you catch what Jacob said to Pharaoh the years of my journey are 130 that is I've lived 130 years and they have been few and miserable <laughs> Jacob you've just been reunited with your son and he's standing right there this shows how easily you and I can be duped by the enemy to look at the worst of a situation rather than seeing God in the midst of of the situation. Beloved, I don't understand how God works. I've walked with him for 43 years and I don't understand how he works, but I do know that he is a good and faithful God. Several times uh, this uh, summer, Craig and I were able to do some international travel. And um, in, uh, towards the end of the summer, we went over to Africa. And we were going to spend some time in Kenya to do two trainings for pioneer evangelism. Then we were going to go over into Uganda, just drive across the border into Uganda. And we were going to do a marriage conference and a mega crusade and some other ministry there, working with a pastor whose name is Ojambo. Patrick, Ojambo Patrick. And so the first night we were there, Patrick invited Craig and I to come into his home and have dinner. It's a great honor. And uh, uh, we were very excited about it. So he picks us up from our hotel and he takes us to his home. When we get there, y'all, we know that Patrick has a wife. Her name is Esther. And they have four children. And we know that she is expecting their fifth. But when we get there, their house is full of people. I mean, full of people. So as we sit down to eat, Patrick said, there's 18 of us that live here. 
And I'm thinking, wow, because I understood there was just a, a family of six. And so he goes on to tell us how part of the people are single moms that they have taken in. And then a lot of the people are orphans that have been abandoned by family. So he's got this family uh, that he's taken care of, of 18 people. Well, over dinner, he begins to tell us a little bit about his uh, life and uh, ministry. He's being used of the Lord to do great things. And he was telling us about what it was like to have, during COVID in Uganda. There was such a severe shutdown that the people were not allowed to leave their homes. And if they did anything that was um, against the, the laws that the, the president had set down, they would be arrested. And so he was telling us about that, that there were people that starved to death out in the villages because they could not get out of their homes to barter for food. And so it was a devastating terrible time in Uganda during COVID. And so he was telling us that on Easter Sunday, he gathered his crowd of 18 folks and he was going to do an Easter service for them. And the police came to the door and they said, you're not allowed to gather as a church. And Patrick said, this isn't my church. I do have a church, but this is not my church. These are my people. And they said, no way. You couldn't possibly have this many people living in this house. And he explained to them, yes, he did. And they arrested him. They took him and all of the boys. They left Esther and all of the girls there, but they took him to jail. And I was just getting horrified listening to that. I was just thinking, how dreadful is that? And I said, oh, Patrick, I, I'm so sorry. And he waved me off and he said, sometime around two o'clock in the morning, I began to share Christ. He said, I spent one night in the jail and 36 people were led to Christ. I mean, I don't understand how God works. But when he needs somebody in jail to share the gospel, he takes one of his most faithful servants in Uganda and puts him there. So at 2 o'clock in the morning when everyone's growing weary and tired, where they're complaining, he said there were uh, lots of them smoking and cursing and, and distressed for being there, and he starts to share the gospel. And suddenly that prison becomes a pulpit, and 36 men step out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. I don't know how he works. I just know he's always at work. He is always at work. So uh, Joseph and his family have been reunited. They're now settled in Goshen. His father is um, a little bit melancholy about the whole situation. Uh, they continue to live there. The famine gets worse and worse and worse. But look down, if you will, to verse 27. Now Israel lived in the land. And now the word Israel here is not referring to Jacob, but to God's people collectively. Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen, and they acquired property in it, and they were fruitful, and they became very numerous. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. How old was Joseph when he was sold? 17. The first 17 years of his life, his father invested in him. The last 17 years of his life, he invested in his father. I believe the Lord used him to mentor Jacob. 
I believe there was reconciliation and joy. I believe he shared with him the things of the Lord that he had learned during his time in Egypt. Jacob lived, verse 28, in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time for Israel to to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, please now place your hand under my thigh, that was a sign of a covenant, and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place, that was back in Canaan. And he said, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. So Joseph swore to him, and then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. Beloved, at the end of his life, we're seeing Jacob the supplanter become fully Israel, the prince of God. The chapter ends with him bowing in worship before the one true God, the one whom Jacob had both wrestled with and had served. Jacob's faith walk had truly had its ups and downs, especially in the early days. And I think we can all relate to what that's like. I've got to tell you that when I get stressed enough that I turn to food and eat my feelings. And I have a lot of feelings. And so when Craig's back happened, I could tell that I was in crisis mode. And I'm not proud of this, but Craig and I moved into Dawson's house, our son that lives here, and we were going to stay there a week to house sit and take care of their puppy, Junie. And uh, Craig said, I can rest over there as well as I can rest here. And so we moved in for a week. We had barely, I had barely gotten our stuff out of the car when I went into Catherine's pantry. Now, my little grandchildren, uh, in fact, their whole family hardly ever eats sweets. They're the most disciplined family the whole family is. And I have a sweet tooth that will not stop. My grandchildren have candy left over from Halloween last year. I should say my grandchildren had candy. I am not proud of this because it's certainly a fleshly response, but I grabbed their buckets and I was ripping into those pieces of chocolate and putting them in my mouth like a squirrel with a whole bunch of nuts. Just, uh, it, I mean, it, it's just my lowest point. It's, I'm not proud of it. I just don't want you to think that every time I come up against something hard that I just sail through. I think it's important that you know this child struggles just like everybody else. And so I, I, I just, I, 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 wasn't, I, I wasn't willing to stop myself. And I am just, <laughs> and every time I went past the pantry, I, I would just get in there. I ate so much of it, I had to go down to the Kroger's to replace it. After I did that, they have a a box of snacks for the Amazon driver. Y'all, I got in that. I mean, that is so embarrassing, just so embarrassing. And I thought, now I'm going to have to go buy snacks for them. 
Jacob had ups and downs. We all do. We all do. This faith walk is hard, and it's never just straight up. It's just up and down and round and through and, oh. But I tell you, God's good. God's good. When we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. The story of Joseph and his father Jacob is a story of starts and misses in in Jacob's life. And yet, at the end of his life, there he is worshiping the one true God. Let's pray. Father God, how grateful we are for your word and for the way that you minister your word to our hearts. And Father, we're exceedingly grateful that you're a good God and that you know what you're doing. Sometimes circumstances look so bleak, and yet you are in control. And you are ministering and tending to us, whispering, I will be with you. We thank you for that. Lord, I ask your blessings upon every one of these precious women that are here and those who are joining us online, that, Father, you will do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or think in their lives. We bless you now and praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. God bless you.